It's the haunting folk song that was written by Harry Chapin in 1974, Cats in the Cradle. It's really a ballad of fatherlessness in a country of fatherlessness. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. It's the story of a son who longs to have a relationship with a father who himself is too busy to take the time to go in the backyard and throw the ball with his kid. But if you remember how the song goes, you know that there's always this vague assurance that the father is always extending to the son about how someday we'll get together, someday we'll spend time together. Ah, it's such, it's so characteristic of the nation that we live in today. It's a fatherless place. There are millions of boys who have never been able to hear the voice of their dad say, I'm proud of you. I love you, son. I'm proud of you. And millions of teenage daughters who never received the security and affirmation, which can only come from the presence of, of an emotionally present father in their lives. And we know that it's fatherlessness that has ravaged the African-American community in America today with so many fathers incarcerated. And it's fatherlessness, which is the outcome of, of all of the divorces that we have today with split custody. And I may never see my dad. I don't know if you noticed that, but Lecrae recently came out with an autobiography. A big part of his story is his dad, as is way too often the case, just walked away and left him. Left a boy asking questions for all of his life. Why didn't you want me? Why didn't my dad want me? And we come to Romans chapter 8 in this middle section. It's the great passage in all of the Bible on the doctrine of adoption. You would think that we get here and Pastor Brad's going to tell you how the doctrine of adoption fix all, fixes all of the ache of fatherlessness that exists inside of our hearts. And what I'm going to try to show you is that's not exactly the case. It fixes some of it. It's true, we have a great father, a father who is the best dad on the block, a father who some of us never had but always wanted All the other boys or girls want to come and hang around and play with. We have that dad. The moment that we believe in Jesus Christ and become a Christian, his father becomes our own father, which fixes some of the ache, but not all of it completely. As we'll read, there are aspects of our adoption that have not yet come to pass. And as a result, we're we're still crying out on the inside. Verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. If you weren't here last week for verses 1 through 13, there's a whole lot in there about you Christians being given the Spirit and no longer being enslaved to sin. One of the big debates in first century Judaism is who gets to call, who has the right to call themselves the children of God, the sons of Israel. Paul makes a radical statement. You are the children of God. If you have been given the Spirit, 
are led by the Spirit, have the mind of the Spirit, operate in the realm of the Spirit, you are, you get the title, verse 15. And the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you are in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your, your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, the Aramaic word for, that a Jewish boy would have uttered to his father, Abba. Uh, sometimes translated daddy, but maybe it means daddy, but it's just a, a term of affection and intimacy that a Jewish boy would, Abba, Father. Verse 16, And the Spirit himself testifies with our human spirit that we are God's children. I hope that's happened to you sometime before. You'll be reading along in a passage of of Scripture in the Bible, and all of a sudden, the, the Bible grabs you, takes hold of you, and says, it's almost like you feel God say, you're mine. <laughs> he grabs you by the shirt collar. You're mine. That is the spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifying to your human spirit that you're adopted. And notice the logical flow here in verse 17. If we are children, then we are also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 19 is kind of a did you know moment. Did you know that the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, i.e. God subjected it as a result of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. But it was subjected, he says at the end of the verse, in hope. In what hope? In the hope that, 21, the creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Another one of those did-you-know moments, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, that is the redemption of our bodies. So did you catch that? This is what I was saying earlier. We've already been adopted. Absolutely. We've already been given the spirit of sonship. But Paul says there is some final part of our adoption that has not yet come to pass. Um, and I think that is why we still ache inside, feeling fatherless. Because we're still eagerly awaiting our adoption to sonship, Paul says, which takes place with the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies. In verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. That is the hope that we have. 
Now, hope that is seen is, of course, no hope at all. For who hopes what they already for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet have, we wait for it patiently. There you have the description of Paul's description of the Christian life. We're, we're patiently waiting for the the hope of our adoption to finally come to pass. Then, verse twenty six. Let's finish the reading. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts, who is God, God knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit shares his mind with God. Really weird or wild Trinitarian idea right here, but... God knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is sharing his mind with God the Father because he intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, This is, uh, is there any better passage in all the Bible than these verses? It was probably Thursday of this week, maybe it was Friday, that I realized I was was in too deep. I... uh, I thought, this is just crazy that I'm going to try and preach a single sermon on a pass- this passage is packed with so much information. And by, I don't know, Thursday or Friday, I realized I'm not going to be able to pull it off well, but I'm already in too deep. So here we go. One sermon on something that probably would deserve 30 sermons. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones probably preached 30 sermons, the great Welsh preacher back in the day. Um, But here we go, one sermon. And here's what I want to talk to you about. Adoption, adoption, suffering, and inheritance. Adoption, suffering, and inheritance. There is a question which every adoptive parent has been asked before by well-meaning, well-intentioned, and highly insensitive people. (laughs) And that question is, do you have children of your own? They've been asked that question even with their adoptive children standing right there beside them in their presence. Do you have children of your own? To which the, uh, the, the less polite of us would say, what do you mean? Of course I have children of my own. These are my children. Um, or, or sometimes the question is rephrased in terms of, do you know anything about their real parents? It's not that the person who's asking those questions is trying to offend. What they are doing, they are operating on the commonly held assumption that I think many of us fall into the trap of holding, and that is there are real kids and then there are adoptive kids. There are are your own flesh and blood and then these other kids that are really nice and cute. I'm glad to have them in my life, but... This somehow they lack 100% bona fide you know, kid credentials. And really, all of the, t- the task of an adoptive parent is to try and undermine that belief, especially in the child's life. I mean, don't you realize that in ab- adoptive households, it's usually the adopted child who, s- who struggles with that the most? I mean, the parents... They think, hey, these are all my kids. I, 
I don't think of them any differently. The goal of my parenthood is to treat each one of them with the same amount of constancy, care, attention, you name it, as I would my own flesh and blood. I don't think of them as any different than any other kids. But the kid himself or herself does. And at least in the conversations I've had with adoptive parents, you're always trying to reverse that that mental trend. Okay, well, where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is when we apply the doctrine of adoption to our relationship with our Heavenly Father, do you feel like an adoptee, like an adopted kid? Another way of phrasing it. Do you believe that God loves you with every bit the same constancy and uh, energy and vitality that he has for his natural-born son. I've never met a Christian before who says, yeah, I, I really feel like that. Yeah, I feel like God loves me exactly as much as he does Jesus Christ. I mean, does, is there anybody in, in this room today who, who feels that way? God is, is committed to me. He loves me and adores me and dotes on me every bit as much as he does his natural-born son, Jesus Christ. You know, talk to me after the service if, if you're one of those. I, I hope that you are, but um, I think our general experience is, is no, I don't feel that way. We either feel, as I talked at the beginning of the service, fatherless, or we feel like adoptees, but we don't feel like the royal sons and daughters of God. And I'll show you one of the areas that this works itself out. It's, it works itself out in our prayer lives. So let's imagine for just a moment that you go to see a prayer therapist. You're on the couch in the therapist's office, and they're listening to you as you pray. Do they hear the intimate, eager, conversational prayer life of a son speaking to his Abba? There you are. You're just laying on the couch Pray for it. Do they hear the kind of the, the familiarity and intimacy of the prayer life of the natural born son, so to speak, Jesus Christ? Do they hear that when they hear you praying to God? Or, as I suspect is the case for most of us, is it just this monotone, mechanical, um, nobody would... If the door was closed and somebody was standing outside the door, nobody would think that he was actually talking to a person inside the room. Is, see, that's the, I think that's the prayer language of the fatherless and the adoptee. Uh, we lack the unrestrained, bold, eager intimacy. And I, and I don't want to characterize it as flippancy. It's not. When we talk to Abba, it was always a respectful term. It was always a sense of my great father, my great daddy, who I'm speaking to. I don't think that characterizes, it certainly doesn't characterize my prayer life. And one of the ways that I illustrated this in the past in terms of the, the opportunity of access that we have to God the Father, as I've said, okay, I'm in my office and the door to my office is closed. My kids come to the church. When they walk into this building and they head down the stairs, do they? Hello, Pastor. Could I? Uh, can we come in and have a minute with you? Is that what they do? 
They just beat down the door. They bust down the door. Just an explosion of uh, uninhibited, unrestrained, we're coming in, dad, type of thing. They, they don't you know, make a, an appointment with my secretary to, to see me. I mean, even nowadays, that's how it used to be. They would just beat down the door. Now they just text me to death. <laughs> it was five, six, seven text messages. My phone is in the middle of a meeting. Do they care that I'm in the middle of a meeting? No. <laughs> the Puritans back in their day, they used this image. They said that the the only person who dares to wake a king up at three o'clock in the morning for a glass of water is his child. <laughs> the only person who dares to wake a queen up in order to get help tying their shoelaces. Something that would be impudent and rude and might get you thrown into jail is perfectly normal and acceptable behavior for a son and daughter. And I just don't think that characterizes us, the fatherless, the adoptee. So that's number one, our adoption. Number two, as I said, the second part of this passage deals with suffering. <clears throat> and I feel like I've been preaching on suffering <laughs> ad nauseum, having just finished a long sermon series in First Peter where Every, path, every verse is about suffering. So I didn't want to talk on this too much, but if you look in verse 22, how Paul describes this world, he says, 22, the entire physical world is groaning. Then in verse 20, the entire creation is subject to frustration. In verse 22, the whole creation, the whole physical world is groaning right up to the present time. It's not how I look at this. Uh, it's not how I look at the world. When I see the sun in the sky on a day like today, do you think that the sun is singing a dirge? Is it a, is it a mournful song that the sun sings? We look at the sun and we think he's up there doing zippity doo <laughs> We hear the birds in the morning and we think they're singing. My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. Oh, what a beautiful morning, right? But what the Apostle Paul says is if you and I could somehow recalibrate our ears to, to hear a frequency of the universe that we are not attenuated to, that we cannot, but if we could recalibrate or put headphones on that would allow us to pick up the sounds of the universe, the sound that we would hear is what? Is groaning. Is, is sighing and throbbing in pain. Is So you, you um, have read firsthand ac- accounts of war, warfare, World War I and World War II, where you've got all of the bodies of dying men laying in the field of battle at the end of day. Whenever you read an account of, of one of the wars, a firsthand observer of the carnage always says the most haunting image, the most haunting moment of the entirety of, is at the end of the day when the noise of battle has, has ended and all you can hear is the moaning, the moaning of dying men laying there on the field of battle. This, this please come, come and, and bandage my wound for I'm, I'm bleeding to death. It's just this low moan that you hear. It's almost like a hum, they say. 
over no man's land. What a powerful way to describe this world under the curse. This whole, this whole, the sun is mourning the fact that he's burning out and growing colder by the hour. The birds are terrified of the fact that they are going to be somebody's lunch. The squirrels are terrified of crossing um, the road on the way up to church. <laughs> you know, the, the trees are mourning their own death. The, the grass is, is crying out in fear that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be thirsty and burn up. That is what the way... Now, I understand it. Paul's speaking metaphorically. And there's other places in the Bible where the, the psalmist or the prophets speak of creation as singing and rejoicing. But here Paul says, if you could hear it, it's moaning, it's groaning, which is easy to believe because so are you. There are three groans in this passage. The first is the groaning of creation. The second is the groaning inside of us, all the suffering and pain we endure. And the third is the only groan that is really hopeful. What's the third groan here? It's found in Oh, it's found in verse, thank you, 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, where we don't even know what we ought to pray for. We, we reach a point where the burdens of life are so overwhelming that we literally don't know what to pray for, where, what to say to God. And yet, it's that moment that the Spirit himself, verse 26, intercedes for us through wordless groans. Again, what an image. We groan in a groaning world, but we don't do it alone. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. And what is he doing here? Is it a, is it a case that he's offering prayers directly to God on our behalf? As I kind of suggested when I was reading the passage, this mystery of the Trinity, that's one of the great reasons to be a Christian, is you have God who speaks to God who also speaks to God. <laughs> And they do it all on your behalf. Like there's no other monistic religion in the world that, that has three persons all operating on your behalf. Or is it the spirit prompting inside of us prayers, groans that uh, go up into heaven? Commentators say it could, it could be either one. But he groans on our behalf. Thirdly... Um, the third, I see I'm losing some of you. It's kind of hot in here, so feel free to just, I know, I'm losing some of you. So we talked about adoption. We talked about suffering. The third thing that's in this passage, and we would probably overlook it living as we do in the 21st century. When, when we think of adoption, the primary reason somebody adopts a child is because of sympathy and compassion. You want to take a child out of an orphanage or out of a war-torn region of, say, Africa, and you want to bring them into your home and give them a family that they've never had. We do it for compassionate reasons. We do it in order to have companionship, a little bundle of joy that we get to shape and live with the rest of our lives. But in the first century, you know the reason why they adopted people mostly? It was for the purposes of economy and inheritance. Most of the adoptions were performed with teenage sons 
or 20-year-old sons. And you did so because you wanted to go out and find a son who would carry on the family name, the family reputation, who would take the family's wealth and uh, invest it wisely, take 25 cents and turn it into $25. You, you did it for the purpose of expanding your family's gain, and you did it always with an inheritance in view. That's exactly what the original readers of the book of Romans in Romans 8 would have been thinking of when they hear this in verse 17, that you are adopted, so the logic is you are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Now, what in the world is it that we're going to inherit as part of God's eternal estate? Well, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the inheritance of glory that is going to be given to us. We don't even know. We have no concept of what glory really is. I've heard it said before that glory is whenever you listen to the best piece of music in the world, whenever you eat a plate of the best food in the world, whenever you fall in love with the absolutely perfect person in the world, then you're getting but a dim hint of glory. Glory is what's coming. We're told on the last day, that the glory of God will come down on us. And it will be so blindingly powerful, it will envelop all of the created order, and the, the veil that is covering us will be removed, Paul says, and we will, be, we will be unveiled as the true sons and daughters of God. What is it going to be like? Well, I'll close right here. It's going to be like the 2010 U.S. Open Golf Championship. <laughs> So the 2010 U.S. Open was played at iconic, the most iconic course in the United States, probably Pebble Beach. It was won by an Irishman by the name of Graham McDowell. In 2010, no European had ever won, had had won the U.S. Open over the last 40 years. And Graham McDowell had never won a major tournament. So by the time he gets to 18 with a one-stroke lead, the guy had to be extremely nervous. I mean, he's on the cusp of history. He reaches, I think, 18 is a par 5. Is it a par 5? I'm trying to think. It's the great dogleg to the left with the Pacific Ocean to the... In any case, we'll call it a par 5. He's on the green, and he has a 3-foot par putt in order to win the tournament. No, no pressure, right? So, takes it back, nice and steady pendulum, and his backswing comes through, and the putt hits the bottom of the cup. And you see on camera, just off to the side of the camera, there's a, a gray-haired 60-some-year-old man who comes running out onto the green, along with a, an attractive 30-ish-something-year-old man who comes running out onto the... And the three of them, Graham McDowell, his father, and his brother, all embrace in the middle of the 18th green. And they are wailing. They're crying so hard. There's, there's just this mountain of emotion as father, son, and brother are just weeping on each other's shoulders. I'm, I'm not making this up. You can pull it up on YouTube. They're just, and you can hear over the, the blubber of, 
of all of the tears of joy, the father in his Irish accent say, you're some kid. <laughs> you are some kid. And the father, or, and Graham McDowell, as he's crying, he, he, says, he says back to him, happy Father's Day. Because it was Father's Day. I realize you may feel fatherless, you may feel like an adoptee. You, the ache is still there, but there is coming a day when, as I said, the veil is going to be removed, and you're no longer going to feel fatherless. You're no longer going to feel like, like an orphan or an adoptee. You're going to be covered in glory, <laughs> and all of creation is going to be covered in the same glory. And the Father and the Son are going to be there, and the Father is going to say to, to you, you're some kid, because you will be some kid. Because Harry Chapin was right. Because on the last day, I am going to be like you, Dad. You know, I, I am going to be like you. Amen.